Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, to places a dive, and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 450 is recorded live June 4th, 2020. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we are entering, I think it was, they called this level four. Is that something, is that, didn't Dante talk about something like level four? Uh, joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing pretty good. Hopefully we'll be able to stay connected tonight. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw that uh, Comcast had a big outage yesterday. Oh, kind of, kick uh, my butt. Yeah. And uh, at work, even though we've got redundant systems, we're on both Comcast and AT&T. That hosed us for about an hour. So we got everything to fail over the way it's designed to. Yeah. I heard it was an open circuit or something uh, in Chicago. Yeah, I never got the details on it, but I did see a map that showed a big red blotch right where Chicago was. So Yeah. Uh, That's not unusual. We see a lot of red blotches around Chicago. Uh, Lately, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of blue and red lights too yeah yeah they can keep it on that side of the lake we uh, yes they can yeah all t- yeah, we, so. yeah i i think this is one of the few times during uh the a tendency for riding that michigan has been pretty peaceful well i think I mean, it's I'm, funny that it's, it's supposed to be spontaneous yet how do you have it happen in 28 different cities with buses, t-shirts, <laughs> yeah. and items like that. It's like, that's really interesting spontaneity there. You know, they got brick piles and t-shirts. Well, see, I, what I happened do... is that... Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I was going to say, I think there was a bunch of NGOs, non-government organizations, that had a lot of donations. And they're, they're you know, it's kind of like a use it or lose it in their budget because of the pandemic. They had been able to go out and cause mischief like normal. So... Uh, you know, they, they kind of blew their first six months budget for the year all at once. So, that, you know, they had to kind of come out swinging. Oh, well, well, they did in a lot of places. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's a whole another show just on that. So I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have, we had uh, Derek in here earlier. We have Eric now. Kevin's stopped by uh, the, the, uh, was intending on coming on, but I, I understand that he is a little challenged with finding stuff on his recently cleaned and organized desk. So that's why I don't advocate uh, keeping things too organized like that, especially a desk. Is a desk meant to be organized? Uh, I have three in my room here, and I have stuff over every single one. Well, I've got a corner desk that I've flattened that I have along the wall, and then I have another desk that I can touch at the same time. And uh, yeah, they, they, this kind of looks like uh, the beginning of a hoarders. Uh, so yeah, it's probably, I'm, I'm probably due, but when you have weather, like we have had recently, who wants to be organizing a desk and you can be out enjoying the weather? Cause we're, we're at that time of the year. My dad used to call it uh, good working weather. 
you know, it's good to be outside and get things done. Even though we have, it was a little sticky, but in general, it's beautiful. Well, is, is that Kevin rolling on in? I'll have to let you tell me. Messing with Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I'm yeah. I'm here, but I'm not quite sure how reliable my connection is going to be. So I'm here. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, well, welcome, Kevin, and uh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I'm enjoying it very much. So right now, with the additional <laughs> tidying going on around here. So, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm here. Like I say, I will uh, do my best to hang out with you guys. Uh, unfortunately, my the charger for my laptop it, it looks just like the one for my wife's. Just uh, hers doesn't put out as much juice as mine does. So mine's MIA, and I'm using hers right now, which uh, will probably not last very long. We'll see how it goes. So uh, I'll yeah, handle so, the best I can. Sometimes they scream. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've seen that happen before. So well, yeah. glad to see you here, and uh, glad that you had a great weekend and. Hopefully that's just you know the the year can do do nothing but go up from here. <laughs> I, I like yeah, I like I've the memes it. about about the uh, commemorative candles coming out for twenty twenty already. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I, I like my my favorite is the uh, Back to the Future where uh, he, he's telling Marty, "Whatever you do, don't never go to twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen the. The graphic going around about the 2020 commemorative candles coming out, and it's basically it's a it's a tea light in a dumpster, you know. <laughs> so, yep, yep, yep. Those are those are kind of multi-purpose, though. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to be getting any better. So you you always think you're at the bottom, and you find new bottoms here. So, yeah, yeah. yeah there's there's somebody going. You think that's bad? Wait till we try this. Yeah. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article we have is Greece opens ancient shipwrecks, submerged sites to scuba divers. And you would think that they were talking about after the uh, COVID pandemic, but this is something uh, from before. They said the uh, these are the latest loosening of restrictions following the passing of a 2019 bill in par- Parliament easing scuba diving laws is part of a larger group of incentives to encourage the return of international tourist degrees following the worldwide coronavirus lockdown. Once stringent diving reg, uh, regulations for Greek waters were recently lifted, eliminating diving depth limits and allowing divers at archaeological sites and sunken shipwrecks in the seas around Greece. Prior to the passage of the bill, scuba divers could only enter archaeological sites when accompanied by underwater guides. The new bill largely allows unrestricted diving even to ancient sites. Scuba divers are understandably expected to flock to Greece's many sunken ships as the 2019 bill allows for unescorted visits to shipwrecks that are older than 50 years. In 2019, the effort of underwater antiquities, the Department of Greece Ministry of Culture, along with the Ministry of Tourism, designated four ancient shipwrecks to become Greece's first underwater museums in a bid to expand underwater heritage marketing. The first two underwater archaeological parks in the nation are scheduled to open to visitors by this summer. Two parks are located on the island of, uh, what was it, Sepinza, opposite Methoni town in the Navarno Bay and Plylos area of southwestern Messina. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that none of those are even remotely correct. 
but I didn't. I can remember when we covered some of the archaeological stuff where they were saying how much of a penalty there was just for people diving on the sites. So uh, looks like this is in the works in 2019, trying to loosen it up just to get some uh, commerce going. And then I'm sure just like everybody else, the uh, COVID-19 situation has uh, done a number on their economy. Yeah, that's one of those areas what we are so fortunate here in the Great Lakes is that uh, we are free to dive and enjoy the shipwrecks that we are able to access. You know, there are a couple which are off limits, namely the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald, the uh, Scourge and the Hamilton, which are a couple of War of 1812 shipwrecks. There's an Ontario Heritage Act, which uh, has been enacted on a number of shipwrecks that lie in Canadian waters that are considered off limits to scuba divers. But overall, Everything here in the Great Lakes in United States waters is accessible to the public. You know, there are, you know, a few which are considered war graves, and, you know, those have some more restrictions than others do, but even those can, can be dove. So, yeah. And I, we are, and, I, and I think that's just the way to go. If you don't, if you, if you restrict something without a valid reason that everybody agrees with, then. You end up with all sorts of problems. Well, even in Canada, to dive the wrecks, technically you're supposed to have a uh, oh a permit issued from the government. You know, uh, a lot of us have gone diving up in Tobermory, and the the wreck diving up there is somewhat different than than down here. Now, they the charter operators you dive with are you know, have already obtained the tourist permits to go and dive the shipwrecks, but if you want to bring your own boat up there, because I've looked into it, it's a lot more complicated. You can't just show up with your own boat and want to go dive shipwrecks unless you, you know, enjoy solitary confinement. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and I imagine that the boat then becomes theirs. I'm not quite sure. I know I was talking with uh, Ken Merriman after uh, shipwreck festival last a year ago over in Ann Arbor. And, he had uh, announced finding the uh, Manasu. It's a marvelous shipwreck, which we talked about a little bit here on the podcast in previous episodes. And uh, it, by all accounts, appears to be, you know, 200 foot water ish, certainly in Canadian waters. But uh, you need to have a permit in Canada just to run a side scan to, to, to look for shipwrecks. You know, I imagine they can probably use it looking for, for, for fish because, you know, the, the hummingbirds and side scans we use quite a bit are, are quite easily obtainable. But if you want to do a search for a shipwreck, you need the government's permission in Canada. Uh, if you want to dive a shipwreck, you need the government's permission in, in Canada. And it's, it's a lot more difficult in other countries than we have here in the Great Lakes. You know, I mean, uh, it's, it's kind of sad. I mean, we have so many wonderful wrecks here to dive, and yet much of the public isn't even aware of them. Yet we have people who travel all over the world to come dive our shipwrecks. <laughs> and because uh, we are, you know, remarkably fortunate to have such an awesome you know, group to, to choose from to scuba dive. I wonder if that is for... Uh, practical reasons, or if it's just a revenue grant, I couldn't tell you on that. You know, but I, I can tell you that, that the laws are there. You know, uh, yep. you know, the Edmund Fitzgerald is absolutely positively protected under the Ontario Heritage Act. It's, uh, you know, there's are substantial fines to it. I understand the area is policed, watched from the shoreline. I'm not quite sure how how they do it. Um, 
I'm not going to encourage you to dive and break the law. Thought about it myself. Most of us actually have one time or another. But, uh, you know, being at uh, 535 feet to the bottom, you know, there's only a handful of people who could successfully dive the shipwreck. And when I say successfully, I mean, could get there and back alive. You know, uh, most of us understand that it's really not a big deal to get there. You know, uh, yeah, you you can get there, just jump in the water with with a tank on your back, you'll get there. The problem is, you know, having the, having the dive planning to get back alive, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, that that one is certainly, uh, has a little bit of benefit with the depth, uh, you know, there's not too many people who are even going to try it. Well, you know, the uh, the Hamilton and the Scourge are actually uh, in close proximity, and there is an archaeological archaeological group out of, uh, I believe, Ontario that dives them uh, every season, every year, to evaluate the condition of them. You know, and these are uh, true pristine War of 1812 shipwrecks. You know, they still have the... Uh, you know, the swords attached to the to, to the rails. They still have uh, human remains on board. You know, uh, they're not especially deep. Uh, you know, they're, they're outside of sport depth, but not by a tremendous amount. Let's watch it. There's some video you can find on YouTube uh, about these shipwrecks. And it's really cool stuff, but it's not something which the average diver is ever going to be able to see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's sad. I mean, the, 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 on one hand, you can say that, it's probably in better condition because it's so heavily restricted, but then, you know, something that's never seen it, you know, except by a handful, you know, I think that reduces its value. Well, there are arguments on both sides of it there. You know, the, the Hamilton and Scourge are certainly uh, war graves. You know, they're, you know, they happened during the War of 1812, and I don't know that they were actually involved in military operations at the time of their sinking, but uh, they, they were war vessels and, and armed as well. So, you know, that they do have additional protection under them. You know, divers today are much more respectful of these sites. You know, I've had a number of uh, kind of heated conversations at different, uh, you know, shipwreck sites on Facebook that there's a large portion of historical community, archaeological community, which still use divers as being pillagers and are, everyone has to have a souvenir. And that's not the case anymore. You know, there are still a few bad apples. Every sport, every area, you're going to find a few bad apples. There are still a few relic hunters out there, but they are the you know, very much a minority. You know, most of us, you know, fully appreciate the value in leaving the ship, the, the artifacts there for the next generation to see. You know, uh, you know, personally, I have no desire to have this stuff on my mantle, you know. I mean, these are a lot of sad stories, a lot of cool stories, but you know, I, I don't want to have it in my house. Uh, I'd rather have a picture of it, you know. I'd rather enjoy it and tell the story. And you know, and yes, the stuff is getting covered by quagga mussels. I know that's uh, something you know, you know, close to Max Hart on this here. That uh, you know, if you don't take it, then it may be lost forever. And I'm sure Mac would like to comment on this somewhat as well. Oh wow! Well, there. I'm just uh, and hearing the background and listening. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I've I've heard you comment at times about, um, you know, how if some of these things were not picked up and given to museums, how they would they would never be seen again, and and the, the, there there is a school of thought of you know, following that as well. Um, personally, I, I believe we have enough divers out there who are enjoying the shipwrecks that I like to see the artifacts stay on the shipwreck. I, I know that, you know. There are a number of museums. Uh, you know the 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 shipwreck museum, the, the Noah Museum in Alpena, 
is a marvelous museum. If you're in the area, please stop in and take a look at this thing. Uh, you know, they have a lot of information on, you know, the stories, a lot of the archaeology behind the research. Um, a lot of it's and it's free too, by the way. And then the stuff in the gift shop they sell at cost. I mean, it's a it's a great place to to be to go to in the area. But they also have just oodles and oodles of boxes and cases and cases of artifacts, which are not on display because they don't have the room for it. Uh, you know, a lot of places do get a lot of you know, artifacts donated to them. You know, I remember speaking to the uh, the museum, the city museum up there at the Lyman House in Manistee, and you know. Over at the pump house, which is kind of their warehouse, you know, they have, you know, rooms full of the stuff, things which people have pulled up off their shoreline and given a museum, which they, they shouldn't have done, but, but it, what's done is done at this point. And, you know, museums, unless they have a way of, you know, documenting and knowing the story behind it, they really don't have a place, or have an interest in displaying it. So it's just, you know, it's better off left on the bottom, you know, I mean, and also with state of Michigan law. If you wish to pull the stuff up, there's a very lengthy permitting process. You know, you have to have a uh, conservation plan in effect for that artifact. You know, you have to have, uh, you know, a place who's going to have it on display and take care of it and maintain that artifact because these things do break down over time, particularly when they're wood. You know, we have found that uh, when wood that's been on the bottom of of the Great Lakes for, you know, say a century – uh, a lot of the enzymes which bond the wood together end up dissolving. And you don't notice that when it's on the bottom, but you bring it up and it starts to dry out. And it very quickly, even good hardwood, you know, even, even oak will start to, you know, quickly degrade and fall apart. And within, you know, a decade will be nothing but splinters. So leave it there. You know, itself it is protected by state and federal law. Uh, protect, there are actually uh, four different laws within the state of Michigan which protect shipwrecks. You know, of course, we do know about the uh, Abandoned Shipwreck Act of 1987, but there also are other uh, other laws. Oh, I don't know off the top of my head here. I have in my presentations, but uh, like I say, there, there are four different laws protecting shipwrecks. So leave the stuff there. You don't want to go on the DNR. They've got a lot a lot deeper pockets for attorneys than you do. Okay, so leave it there. Well, down here in Florida, you know, they're they're hoping that these the warm waters and weather will bring back some of the tourists. You guys? Nope, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Hello? Yeah. So what they're saying is that after the uh the COVID-19 crisis has created uncertainty about what to expect this year. Some local dive shops are anticipating a backlog of customers who postpone trips during the COVID-19 and do shut down on the Keys. While others expect a slow return of tourists on Monday, reopening the island of change to visitors. Key divers co-owner Michael Goldberg is planning for a week summer at his shop. I position myself uh, for that to be the case. I expect revenue and volume to be reduced. Maybe as time passes into the summer, we will gain a great comfort in traveling. COVID-19 isn't going away quickly. People don't want to get ill, and the economic damage that people have suffered is too much right now. The Florida's unemployment system has made us laughing stock of the country. Sailfish scuba owner Jennifer Kerr said her Key Largo shop has been catering to locals looking to refresh their certification. 
and to learn new trade since May 18 reopening of non-essential businesses. We've refunded in excess of 72,000 to customers from canceling their dives during spring break and Easter until the beginning of May. A lot of people were booked to learn how to scuba dive, Kerr said, but there's hope on the horizon. We have already booked customers until June 9th, or excuse me, 7th, and luckily we have kept their reservations, so they'll be diving with us this weekend. We had tourist-based business, and that's what we need to survive to pay our mortgage, our staff of eight and ourselves. As for sanitizing and social distancing protocols during diving trip, Kerr said not much has changed. At Sailfish Scuba, we're the only operator in Florida Keys since 2011 that ever sells half the seats of that our 40 boat is set capacity for. A 40-foot boat has set capacity for. We have we hate the packed cattle boat, so while the whole COVID-19 thing in that aspect, it does not affect us at all. So I guess what he's saying is that they've got enough spacing on their boat to where you've got social distancing uh, pretty obtainable. All snorkels and masks are soaked in 10% bleach solution, then soaked in Listerine. The boat is sanitized after each trip. Key dives take similar precautions after each trip. All areas of the deck, including the handholds, are hosed down with an automated pump sprayer, the bleach solution, consistent with CDC and Divers Alert Network's guidelines. Goldberg said, mass depog will be provided and divers must rinse their own mass after they enter the water. Key Largo's Amaray Dive Resort, which combines lodging and dive snorkeling trips, use the time leading up to June 1 reopening of the Keys to prepare accommodation. Several guests who have canceled due to the global pandemic are expected to return. We're just picking up for the rest of June. We're sold out for the weekends at 50%. And for July, that's picking up very quickly, General Manager Kim Trollett said. We're operating at a resort capacity of 15 rooms. We're taking the extra precautions by putting hand sanitizing stations throughout the property. We'll be sanitizing communal areas like the lounge, poolside furniture, tiki hut multiple times a day. Boats and equipment undergo sanitization procedures as well. Most of Amore's dive guests are Florida residents with few visiting from neighboring states, according to Trollet. So it's good to see that they're they're trying to make the attempt to survive through the year. Uh, I you know if I was going to do a crystal ball prediction, I think many of them will probably do okay towards the end of summer. But uh, did they will they have enough time to make up to survive through the uh, uh, their slower business months. Daredevil mission to cut mass off the World War II shipwreck packed with 1,400 tons of explosives. We've covered this shipwreck uh, a few times. This is the one uh, where you've seen pictures. It's over there in Great Britain, and you see three or four masts sticking up out of the water with signs on them saying, you better not come by, boom, boom. Uh, cargo ship SS Richard Montgomery was anchored in the Sheerness in Kent, when it grounded and broke up in 1944, the wreck and its cargo had been monitored around the clock by port authorities and protected by a 500-meter exclusion zone. You know, I have to laugh because we've had other articles where people say nobody's watching these things. Uh, the wreck and its cargo had been monitored around the clock by port authorities. Uh, Department of Trans- Transport is set to now embark on a 5 million pound project with a contractor survey the vessel and cut its mast. Department for Transit said in a letter the Essex MP James Dundridge, the height of the mast may have been reduced because they may be placing undue strain on the rest of the vessel structure. They added, therefore, we have decided to explore the possibility of reducing the height of the mast. 
this forms part of our ongoing strategy to ensure risks posed by a vessel are suitably managed. The SS Richard Montgomery dropped anchor, uh, ended up being grounded on a sandbar just 270 yards from Medway. Crew scrambled to try and remove the dangerous goods, but were only able to salvage some before the hull split in two and the ship foundered. The deadly cargoes remained on board ever since, and fears remain that uh, over its load, with scientists predicting it exploded, it could create a tsunami-like wave, which would bring mayhem and destruction to the surrounding areas. What is that? Is that a scan photo that they got there, or is that uh, somebody's artist rendering? But whatever it is, it's it looks like a composite. But the point yeah. I have is it's been there for how many years, and why would they not have evacuated the explosives when it was in a lot better shape and condition, easily you know to get to, as opposed yes. to years and years and years later. Yeah, it seems like it. I'm surprised they haven't done like some demolition out there. I mean, generally when they get rid of explosives, they do it by blowing them up, and you know clearly it's a hazard to navigation, um, hazard to anyone on the surface. Um, I don't know how deep the water is there, but when you see the masts sticking out of the water that far, uh, I don't know they're ever going to have this area clear, uh, you know, low enough to you know allow boats to get through that area again anyway. Uh, blow, blow it up and cord it off, you know. That's kind of been my thinking. You know, and I've I've seen the reports where they they said that it would destroy all the homes in the area. I think you make it a game. I think what you do is you do. You know, like, have you ever seen that where they uh, they cordon off a football field and they have uh, you know animals poop in it, and if you happen to have the ticket to the one where the poops in, you get some money. Why not do the same <laughs> yeah. thing with this with this rack? Uh, why not? Why not? You have uh, you evacuate everybody within ten miles, but then you you sell slips on all the properties. So, uh, and if that property gets damaged, then you would share in the pot. So what you do is you collect all this money, and the first thing that it would go to is at the end of the explosion, you know, after you detonate it, anybody who had any damage, you would you know, cover the cost to rebuild and reconstruct whatever was damaged, but then the rest would go into this betting pool. So it's like a self-funded insurance. You televise it. I mean, and then maybe we could, we even do something where you like, you could have convicts, you know, you could put convicts in scuba gear and you could have them like pull ammunition out, you know, if they can get so many tons out, then, you know, they, their sentences reduced. Sounds like the plot of a really twisted sci-fi movie. I think, I, think yeah. I saw this on late late night cable. Yeah, I, th- I think it was one of them. You know, they had the the Arnold Schwarzenegger look like. Yeah, he was. He was yeah, there. yeah, that Running Man thing there. Yeah, yeah, maybe Escape from New York, but like sunken New York. Yeah. Yeah. And then here we've got some Hong Kong shark attacks, blood soaked chapter in the city's history that saw more shark deaths than any other place on Earth. Uh, many questioned why Wong Kui Young chose to go swimming at the Clearwater Bay First Beach in Hong Kong's rural Sang Kung District in early hours of June 13, 1995. It was a decision that would prove fatal for the Hong Kong housewife. Shark attacks in the city eastern waters had already claimed two lives in the previous fortnight, total seven deaths over a four-year stretch. Fears of more carnage that week had reached fever pitch, but Wong had taken daily morning plunges for years. It was with a group of more than 50 swimmers who braved the waters that morning. She even warned her fellow paddlers to keep watch and to stay in the shallows close to shore, 
Witnesses say they first heard Wong scream around 8 a.m. I had just asked her whether we should get out of the water. She told me to go ahead and she would come on later. When I got to shore, I looked back and saw her floating in a pool of blood. A friend and fellow swimmer told the Post at the time. When Wong's body was pulled from the water by a lifeguard, her left leg had been ripped up at their hip. Her left arm was gone. Doctors later suspected it had been several sharks involved, given that there are also seven teeth marks in Wong's abdomen and two in her right thigh, all, all between three and eight centimeters wide. It had been 25 years since Wong's death. The last fatality of a shark attack officially recorded in Hong Kong. The tragedy brought an end to blood-soaked chapter in the city's history that reads like a script from a Hollywood theater. The- thriller. At the time when Hong Kong saw more deaths by shark than any other place on Earth, from 1991 to 1995, the lines between fact and fiction became blurred as the story played out in transfixed residents. There were lurid headlines fueled by dubious monster shark sightings, half-crazed theories of goings-on, how the city should deal with the problem. Dr. Annie Cornish grew up in Hong Kong, now leads the Sharks Restoring the Balance program, the World Wildlife Global Shark and Ray Conservation Initiative. Cornish also described himself in the waters off Sang Kung in the height of the hysteria. I just started my PhD looking into reef fish, and one of my study sites was across Sharp Island, across from Clearwater Bay. All these sharks attacks were going on, he said. So it was a nerve-wracking time. We had heard that people were going out in boats and throwing chickens over the side with hooks in them. Things got quite hysterical. Infamous shark hunter Vic Hislop was flown in from Australia by a local media group not long after two fatal attacks off Shangzi Wan and the Silver Strand Beach. In 1993, Hislop's job was to rid Hong Kong waters of the menace. Instead, he caught a cold and a dose of food poisoning, quickly ran out of ideas. Word at the time was that Hislop had been suggested trying sausage to the feet of live ducks and using them as lures. Now, I have to interrupt. So you you put sausages on the feet of live ducks? This kind of goes back with my... uh, I, I, I don't think my explosion idea was enough i think this is the ju- this is this is the thing okay so when PETA wants to take us down send the hate <laughs> send send all the hate mail to the show tension darren uh, <laughs> yeah to just yeah 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 just put it the the show attention darren to michigan it'll get there you know yeah. so what's 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 your zip code darren <laughs> yeah what's the, the zip code yeah we're we're somewhere in michigan uh 41999 or something i think yeah, well, yeah. you you yeah. might like this it's going to give you so many good hits that it's going to boost yeah. circulation and yeah. <laughs> it might make some funds out of this or something yeah i mean no, no, enemies no. is not always bad so is, is this this is more like a version of where they throw the ducks in the river and then they collect them at the end and if the numbers in the bottom of them you, you do a hundred ducks with sausages to their feet. Yeah, but those <laughs> the the ducks in the river though those aren't living ducks and all that. I mean, uh, oh, there's 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 a detail there I must be overlooking. Yeah, afraid not. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna okay, you're gonna have all the uh, animal activists all picketing the show here, and uh, yeah. you know, in, in front of that wonderful studio we have here, it's just gonna be mobbed yeah. with people hating us now. Yeah. So. Yeah. So they said sausages in the feet of live ducks using the lures and suitable number of sharks' favorite diet of stingray could not be found. After two weeks in the water and hours regaling onlookers with salty tales of high seas, 
Hislop pocketed his check and was gone. Uh, government inquiry into what was occurring and what, of course, the action should be taken. Apparently, they heard suggestions that hand grenades thrown from helicopters might clear the water of danger. Another local media outfit sponsored construction of a 100000 Hong Kong dollar shark cage so divers could spot any dangers. These funds ran out after fishing 50 missions into the deep and no shark sightings. It now looks almost certain that the last three decades recorded between May 31st and June 13th of 1995 were caused by a pair of tiger sharks, given the nature of the bites on Wong's body and the various confirmed sightings. You know a lot more about tiger sharks than we did then. One of the strategies they employ is to turn up where there aren't other tiger sharks, have an element of surprise, find some prey, and move on. So the one in Hong Kong were probably doing just that, an exploratory foray. See, I think what the sharks did is they had they had uh, put number had numbers put on all the people getting in the water, and they were taking bets on which one they'd be able to get. Uh, but there were a few large fish here, and even then, they were probably testing potential food source. And by the way, it is biting it. Uh, that's why very few people die from shark attacks. Actually, get eaten. The sharks normally bite them, doesn't like it, and moves off. Uh, that's why I always recommend marinating yourself before you get in the in the water. University of Hong Kong marine biologist Yvonne Sadovoy uh, was called by government for advice. Sitting on the panel would eventually decide to install shark nets around 40 beaches. In the beginning, there was a rumor that the attacks were by a rogue shark, but there's never any evidence that suggested it was a single animal in any one year or, or that one was coming back year after year, she recalls. This is at the time, the monsoon season, where historically had been Quite a few reports, and there were regular occurrences at one time. People forget there used to be big shark fisheries here. Not anymore. While no fatal attacks in 25 years is by any measure a good thing, the statistics hides a horror story of its own. Overfishing has decimated fish stocks and the shark population in particular in and around Hong Kong over the past five decades. As mapped out in the 2010 paper, sharks in Southeast Asia, unknown, unmonitored, unmanaged, for which uh, Sadovoy was co-author Shark Fishing in the Waters in Southeastern and Eastern China dates back more than 3,000 years with an estimate that the country's annual catch from 1950s and 1960s was between 9,000 and 12,000 tons. Reports up to 50 years ago recorded catches of hammerheads up to 4.5 meters long, massive hauls of black-tip reef sharks, but between 1970 and 1990, all known shark fisheries in the region collapsed. Of the 109 species present historically South China Sea, only 18 species were recorded in the current marker survey, which all were landed as bycatch. 65% were below the size of sexual maturity. All the big fish have been fished out here. The situation since 1970s was horrific. We've probably done 850 dives in Hong Kong, and I've seen one shark. I've not heard a reliable reporting of a large shark in Hong Kong for five to 10 years, but sharks have a terrible reputation. Snakes kill 20,000 to 50,000 people a year worldwide. Will sharks kill six? Now, I would like to say nobody tell my wife that, or she'll have me in the backyard torching snakes. Uh, uh, yeah, we just had a hog snake in the, in the backyard this last weekend. Uh, Those are cool. I was, I was surprised it was hissing. And, of course, mm-hmm. my, all three dogs were right on it. So once I got them inside, because we do have rattlesnakes. Uh, I don't know if you've seen those around here, but. It's awful rare, though. Extremely rare. Yeah, I've come across three in the last 30 years. 
but at first that's what I thought it was just from the uh, the coloring was was that but back to the article while the Hong Kong government turned its attention to shark nets following this the spate of attacks in its controversial move country around South Africa and Australia have been netting far more than just dark shark species boy how long does this go on uh, so this is a long long way to get to just talk about that uh, the overfishing uh, part of it and I don't this article doesn't get into it but there's also belief in uh, both the Chinese and the Japanese fishing fleets that sharks are competing with the fish they want to catch for food. So there's a belief if they get rid of all the sharks, then it makes humans a top predator and there'll be more fish to catch. So uh, we'll have a, a link to this in the show notes if you want to read the whole article. I don't know if they ever get quite to the point. It's kind of like it keeps twisting and turning but never quite gets there. And then uh, scuba diver diving with prehistoric fish in Montana. This one's a video. And then I did watch this before the show. It says, like most people find themselves casually flipping channels on TVs, you may find yourself landing on Discovery Channel and caught in a trance. No matter what the show's about, it's probably so fascinating you can't take your eyes off it. Take Shark Week, for example. There are people who plan on vacations around Shark Week so they don't miss a minute. I think it's because we're fascinated with things we don't understand that are bizarre, not to mention cool seeing footage of a giant fish attack seals in steel cages. Well, they say you don't have to go to the ocean for scuba diving for giant fish. Simply strap on your gear and take a swim in Fort Peck Reservoir. Uh, Fort Peck is a 18,700,000 acre feet, which is 23.1 kilometer uh, squared. Is that cubic? Cub- yeah, cubic. Yeah, cubic. So that's a, it's the volume of water. Is that like being the ninth richest person with a name? You can't can't hear me? Well, no, you're back. You were gone momentarily, and you're just now coming back on the screen now. Okay, you're back. Okay. You left off. I was was saying. Fifth largest artificial lake. Yeah, I I said it was the fifth largest artificial lake in the United States. And I said that's, uh, you know, that's kind of when you – uh, qualify something. It's like saying that you're the ninth best looking person with the name of Bob Smith. You know, it's it's kind of like you're really trying to to bring in that record. Uh, it extends 134 miles or 216 kilometers through central Montana. It is twisting inlet studded shoreline that has a total length of some 1,520 miles or 2,450 kilometers. It's a home of many species of fish including pike, walleye, chinook, salmon, and the prehistoric relic, this relic, the sturgeon. And so this is a video showing them diving on the sturgeon. Uh, they say the sturgeon evolution dates back to the Triassic period, some 245 to 208 million years ago. Yeah, they are some dinosaur-looking fish. You know, there's a... There's a fish hatchery in our area. I know some of our listeners are familiar with the uh, fish hatchery by Wolf Lake off M43. And they have a half dozen sturgeon in there, and they are monsters. I mean, some of these things are you know, better than seven feet long. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and technically, I guess if you went diving there, you know, at the fish hatchery, you'd be diving with prehistoric fish. Yeah. 
place is pretty well monitored, though. I wouldn't recommend it. This is not trying to encourage anyone to take part in any sort of illegal <laughs> behavior. Uh, keep in mind, we are funded by Patreon. We, it's going to take us a whole bunch of shows to raise your bail money if you're yeah. caught diving with the sturgeon out to a fish hatchery, Eric. So don't get any ideas, okay? I imagine I, you know, Eric and Karen are probably PMing right now about how to, how to pull it off. But Yeah. Well, uh, you, can, you can fish for sturgeon in Michigan, I believe, can't you? You can spear them. Uh, I think it's Black Lake, which is northern Michigan. They actually hold a lottery about them for them for ice fishing. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some very, very limited conditions under which you can fish for lake sturgeon. Uh, you know, overall they are protected. You know, sometimes you do. Uh, you know, rarely you have people catching them because you know they they are in a lot of the same environment that you do find. Uh, you know, salmon and trout, particularly when they're spawning. Um, I understand the there was a world record set over at the Allegan Dam here in Michigan for the largest fish uh, landed on eight pound test, and it was uh, like a oh, like a sixty pound sturgeon, which is not even a real big one. The, the, these things get a whole lot bigger than sixty pounds up at the Allegan Dam, and you know that guy must have had some real talent to be able to land a sixty pound sturgeon on eight pound test. So. Yeah, well, if you, if you get the chance to watch the video, it's worth a watch. And it's like, you know, when we go dive on a shipwreck here in the Great Lakes and the bottom's covered with nothing but gobies, that's what this video is like, but for sturgeon. Mm. And I was really, I was really surprised. I, I didn't realize that they would group like that. Plus they really weren't moving that way. They weren't moving too fast in anything in particular. So, uh, this is a recent, this is post date of this is June 4th, which would seem to be you know, warmer weather. So it wouldn't be like in the winter where fish are really lethargic. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was, I was surprised to see that sort of behavior. Uh, my, my grandfather had uh, gone fishing once with my grandmother and they were a little small uh, uh, fishing boat. And my grandfather had hooked a sturgeon and he was yelling at my grandmother to get a net. And she goes, what am I going to do with this net? The sturgeon was literally longer than the boat they were in. Uh, so yeah so Selfie, he, he selfies, tried uh, selfies the photo yeah. yeah so he he tried getting it to the boat ramp and then uh uh when he when he kind of uh kicked on the trolling motor the it just decided i've had enough and of course broke the line mm-hmm. as a side note yeah, it, i've got a picture of sturgeon the smallest is seven foot on a rack that uh-huh. came out of the Niles River there in Niles where we dive for the dams and stuff we're put in. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's what they say here. In the article, for, this is from the Michigan DNR. They say sturgeon can grow to weights of up to 200 pounds and lengths of seven feet. But I've heard some of the old timers say that seven feet was, is a small one. So I, I ran into uh, one. In all the years I've been out there, and it was a little smaller than me, but when we met head on, scared the living crap out of me. And he went his way, I went my way, and uh, it just startled the hell out of you. You know, yeah, that something that big that looks that gross, ugly, monstrous, and it's like you know, you sort of you drag the regulator back out of your stomach, or you, inhale <laughs> it, you know. And then yeah. you said, damn, I wish I'd had a GoPro 30 years ago. 
<laughs> yeah, well, well, I know they're saying they, the they, lifespan. Go ahead. They, they are. They plant them quite a bit around here. I know the uh, Camelza River up by Allegan. They have a big festival about planting them up there. Um, I know it takes them a long time to reproduce. Though I want to say the the males have got to don't reproduce until they're seven years old, and the females are well into double digits. So, I you know that they got a little long time to you know reach the reproduction age, and that really hinders them. Um, yeah. They. Yeah, used to be you know, very prevalent in the Great Lakes. Uh, you know, they actually were considered like a nuisance because, uh, you know, they were good eating, but there were just so many of them that they, you know, would get in the way of, you know, fishing for other things. Yeah. The uh, Maritime Museum in South Haven has had a number of exhibits on the lake sturgeon. Uh, South Haven had a pretty strong fishing industry, and I know that uh, – some of the staff up there. Uh, I know Ashley is real big into researching, uh, you know, Fishtown history. And, you know, they have quite a few pictures of sturgeon, which are quite a bit larger than the guys in the picture. Of course, they probably pulled out the shortest guy, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, where's, yeah, where's, a, typical... where's, where's a Sweeney at? Put him in the picture. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they said the typical lifespan is 55 years for males, 70 to 100 years for females. Uh, they're listed as a threatened species in Michigan. Commercial fishing of lake sturgeon is currently prohibited. In Michigan, sports fishing is closely regulated. There are many specific regulations for recreational fishing in Michigan. Um, and when you look at the DNR website, you can expand, and they pretty much have it by each body of water. So, like, if you're in the Detroit River, you've got July 16th to March 15th, and they say all lake uh, sturgeon must be immediately released. St. Clair and the St. Clair River is July 16th to the 15th, between 42 inches and 50 inches inclusive. Uh, sturgeon less than 42 inches and greater than 50 inches must be released immediately. So what they're doing is they're doing that bracketed. So there's that only that one in between because they're trying to preserve the granddaddies and grandmommies, I guess, of the fishes so they can get to that size. Cause it takes, you know, you know, probably that hundred years to get those larger than the seven foot size that we've heard of. Uh, well, I know the ones they have at the DNA, at uh, the fish hatchery in Kalamazoo, there's an interpretive plaque there and indicates that they came to the fish hatchery in 1987. So, uh, you know, that's right there. You got, you know, 33 years. These are, you know, these, these fish are a little long in the tooth. They, 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 they live a long time. Um, yep. They do have, you know, a number of them that are in the six foot range, but I was amazed, you know, there's one, I know the water magnifies and all that, but uh, you know, if you folks are in the area, uh, if you head out to the observation pond at the uh, fish hatchery, there's an area where, they have like a white tarp along the bottom so you can get a real good perspective of the fish swimming across it. And uh, when one of those sturgeon go across, your, your heart skips a beat. It'll get your attention real quick. Yeah. Supposed to be pretty good eating. Never yeah. had it. Yeah, I I have it, and I don't expect that I will, but uh, sounds interesting. And then the Destin Scuba Crew rescues a sea turtle. This is another video trapped by floating debris in the Gulf of Mexico. When you look at the video, you can see that there's a sea turtle that's pulling something about five times 
longer than it is. Turtle's estimated to be about the size of boogie board. Uh, said every time it tried to get down, uh, the mass that was attached to it was would would pull it back up. Emerald Coast scuba boat was on its way back to Destin Tuesday morning when they noticed a sea turtle entangled in debris. Uh, Kirkland, who was first mate, said Captain Nevin Hogger first noticed the turtle and stopped the boat. Scuba instructor Jason Dodd and Kirkland got in the water for a rescue. Dodd tried to pur- pull the turtle toward him to help free it, but the turtle freaked out. Kirkland said they decided to cut the line instead. Once free, the turtle drove, dove straight down. He was an adolescent. Kirkland added uh, that they couldn't quite tell from the encounter whether the turtle was a green turtle or a loggerhead. Uh, we've seen huge ones out here. And they've got the video. Incident happened about a mile straight out from Destin East Pass. Kirkland, who points out, points many of his photos on his website, DiveInDanny.com, said his life with Animal Coast Scuba was a dream job. He posted the video of the rescue, calling it a really awesome team effort. And he, it looked like he was uh, just threw a mask on and dove down. So uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't in scuba gear when he went down there. And then here we've got uh, from a computer magazine, CNET said, see an under a wild underwater benthic tornado whirl across the sea floor. Here's the weather cor- forecast for the Coral Sea Marine Park seafloor in the coast of Australia. What were the chance of tornadoes? Researchers, researchers following Smith Ocean Institute ROV dive near Queensland spotted the wild event and tornado-like formation appeared on camera during a live stream on Thursday. The original focus of the marine geologist Robin Beeman's commentary was on corals and a creature called the sea pen, but quickly shifted to fascination and wondered the appearance of the curved, rotating tornado-like formation. Researchers in the video called it amazing, completely world weird, and really unusual. Beeman said the phenomenon reminded me of a benthic storm. Waves that travel under the surface cause turbulence near the ocean bottom. The swirling formation soon dissipated but left a short trail along the seafloor. The cause of the small benthic tornado seems to be a mystery. You can watch a full replay of the live stream or just start with the appearance in the underwater world one. Now, Mac, I didn't get a chance to watch this. Uh, Does it say how deep that just, was? Uh, I'm not seeing anything in the article saying how deep. But well, looking, looking at, at that boat. I'm looking at the boat. That's pretty darn deep water. Yeah, that that that's not a little coastal uh, dive platform. That's something that you go from, you know, in between Australia and you know the the ocean. Yeah, it didn't give any other details on the depth though. That would have been quite nice. But the picture's awesome. Oh, that's nine hundred and fifteen meters. Nine hundred fifteen meters. Okay, because it says it's at the Coral Sea Marine Park, so we could probably. Look that up and see how deep. 2,700 feet. Ooh. Yeah. That's that's further than we're going to be diving, yes. Yeah, a little outside my range. Uh, I, I think it would be a more than a one-tank dive. Yeah. <laughs> or like you said, you could get down there, but get back <laughs> up might not be. Yeah, with they enough weight, you can get, you get down anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, getting there is no problem. It's the whole getting back. That's 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 where the skill comes into effect. Yeah. Well, do you want to get back or do you want to get back alive? <laughs> well, I think it's a matter of getting back alive. Everyone seems to think that uh, first man to climb 
Everest was uh, oh Hillary 1958. It's actually a lot of good evidence that it was actually George Mallory in 1927. It's just that Mallory died in the attempt, so Hillary gets the credit. Got to make it back to get the credit, peeps. I I personally think it was all the Sherpas hauling their gear. <laughs> you know, they, they probably did get there first. They probably did. <laughs> They're like, here, come on up. <laughs> yeah, you, you see that when you watch. I, every time I watch those Everest programs, and I, I appreciate that for somebody who climbs, that's like the pinnacle of your of your career is to be able to do that. That, but when you look at the whole industry that is for the people in that area, and how many times they're going up and down just to shuttle people to all these base camps and get things set up, and you in. There's just something that's a little bit odd about it. Well, and they've got to be in just incredible shape. I mean, I mean, obviously they already genetically dispensed to be in that climate, so they have you know better lung capacity, more efficient, more efficient lungs to begin with. But they've got yeah. to be in great shape to do that. Yeah, they're conditioned. They've they've lived there for for quite a while, and you know that that's. A lot of what the challenge is whenever you do anything where you're changing altitude is just, uh, you know, understanding how your body's going to react and what you can do. And yeah. the acclimatization lo- factor, yeah, yes, being a local is certainly going to be to your advantage. And and being well, a local, go ahead. And I'm guessing that most of them are probably pretty young too. Yeah, uh, there was I mean, there it- was there was a special on one of the channels I was watching on Sherpas, and it it was actually came out being kind of sad about how they were uh and this is even modern you know because it's usually a westerner who goes in there and you know runs these programs and gets the tourists and then you have the uh the sherpas and the help and uh just some of the economics and the injuries that some of them are having but yeah and but it's it's pricey though you know if you want to climb mount everest and this is a i got this stat probably 10 years ago um, not that I was shopping, but uh, you're looking at around $50,000 if you want to climb on Everest between your airfare to get there, all your permits and all the, because, you know, they don't just drop you off at the base of the mountain. You've got a, you know, you got a long haul from the airport to get there, um, you know, several days, actually probably, probably several weeks as far as acclimatization time and all. Um, and most of the people who have the means to, do that kind of adventure, you know, are getting a little long in the tooth themselves. And, you know, so that, you know, they, they, they need the Sherpas. They couldn't do it without them, that's for sure. Although, oh, when you make the final push to the top of Everest, uh, that's on your own. You know, they have a series of base camps that you have to ascend to. And there is one base camp that's that's the highest, of course. And that, from from there, you need to be able to make it to the peak and back within that one day before the storm set in. And these folks are setting off at, you know, like two o'clock in the morning and, you know, a climb for, of Everest is not what you expect, by the way, you know, everyone to think it's going to be this great big unspoiled vistas. No, there's sad to say there's garbage and oxygen tanks and bodies and coats and tents and, it's not what you're expecting to, to climb this, you know. It's a, you know, the climb of a lifetime. Don't get me wrong. Um, and the most, the biggest hazard climbing Everest, from what I've read, 
are the traffic jams. You go up there to, you know, be on the top of the world by yourself, and you're not. You know, they have all these features which you have to traverse that are very challenging to get through. Only one person at a time can get through it. There are a number of places where you used to have to, you know, have a great deal of climbing skill to go over these rocks. But uh, the Chinese have actually bolted ladders in place to get over these rocks. But still, only one person can go across that ladder at a time. So, you you know, the, the weather gets bad. You're taking turns to get across this feature. And there's so many people waiting in line to get across the feature that by the time it's your turn, you know, you're, you're looking at frostbite hypothermia and you die. And I guess it's uh, one in 12 people who go to climb uh, who, who go to climb Everest don't come back. And Karen uh, Mann makes the comment, nowadays there are a, a lot of bodies that are used as markers to show you how close you are. If you die there, you stay. Yes, that's very true. There's actually a... An area of Carnes that is on the ascent where they have taken, you know, they make a number of little stone piles to commemorate comrades who are not coming back with you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, say it's one in 12 doesn't come back. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I believe that you are required to carry your own body bag with you. That's part of the procedure is that you have your own body bag. When you die, they put you in it. I, I wasn't aware that they were required to leave you, or they just there was not a guarantee that they would bother getting there, with your body. But there have been expeditions made to recover climbers. Um, you know, there's been people who are quite wealthy, and their loved ones wanted the body back, and they were recovered. Um, but there isn't when when you get past that last base camp, um, you know, you're in the death zone. You know. Uh, I think it's when you're over, is it 25,000 feet? I want to say Everest is 27,000. But once you get over that that uh, 25,000 feet zone, the oxygen is so low in the air that you are dying. It's just a matter of when you're going to die, how long you can tolerate that. Um, and, and when you're there, it's just it's so hard to move forward or backward for that matter. That uh, it's it's every man for themselves, you know. These expeditions go up there, and everyone agrees that uh, if I fall, then you're going on without me. I mean, everyone's paid their fifty grand to be there, and uh, if someone can't make it, well, you know, they'll pass on the watch and the rings to the next of kin because they're all done. So, yeah, yeah. I, I found the website that talks about the fees. So for Mount Everest. Uh, the normal route for 8,848 meters in the spring, that's $11,000 in the autumn. It's 5,500 in the winter and summer. It's 2750. So that's that's probably just, that's just the fee to the government of Nepal. Mm -hmm. Then you got to look at your guide service. You got to look at your, you know, your airfare to get there. You have to look at, um, you know, the, your, your food, your equipment, uh, you know, and, and, and it's not just, you know, anybody who wants to climb a mountain goes there. You, you know, the, the, these are the tech divers of mountain climbing that go there, you know, uh, you know, and the media always looks at when they have these fatalities on Everest, which do happen from time to time, you know, and, and when it happens, it doesn't just happen one or two. It's usually a large party that do, just doesn't make it back. They go up and uh, a storm closes in and, uh, you know, 
they may be found a few years later or something. It's it's a really bad deal when people are lost up there. Uh, but when it happens, when people are lost up there, you know, it's always this great romantic uh, view of climbers and they were you know, pursuing this great vista, going to great heights, and people don't understand. And yet, scuba divers are doing the same thing. You know, it is far tougher to go 535 feet down to see the Edmund Fitzgerald than it is to go 27,000 feet up to see the, the top of, of uh, Mount Everest. You know, there are, worldwide, there are thousands of people capable of climbing Mount Everest. None of them are on this podcast, by the way, <laughs> but uh, there are, you know, thousands of people capable of climbing Mount Everest. Worldwide, I don't think there are 10 people. Well, scuba divers, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking the commercial realm, because that's a whole different deal there. But there probably are 10 scuba divers out there who could plan a successful dive to the Evan Fitzgerald. And 535 feet versus 27,000 feet. And when someone dies scuba diving, the media always looks at it like, what were they thinking? Why did they want to go there? That was just crazy, you know? But, uh, you know, of course, we all know why they want to go there. I would sort of disagree on the numbers of who could do that nowadays. There's not a, It's not going to be in the thousands, but there are several hundred, I think, that would have the technical expertise to go 500. You know, the Navy puts out quite a through a uh, few. We've had some people who've communicated up to us on the show who are in the ex- the Navy's experimental dive group. But would they outside the Navy have the support crew to enable that? I mean, could they do that on their own? In in cold water? We Well, we did have some scuba divers dive the Edmunds Fitzgerald years ago. Yeah, yeah, they, they did. In 1995, there were a couple right. of guys that did the they didn't broadcast it. It was something they did because they wanted to do. But my point is, with the right support, you can do that, especially with the gear that you have nowadays. But by the same token, ain't a lot of guys who really are going to do that. Like you said, everybody can get down. I'd like to come back mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Well, and you kind of think about all that brutal decompression down there. I mean, because you're going to be spending hours uh, below um, that second thermal climb. That second thermal climb at 100 feet there, that water never gets above 36 degrees, okay? So you're looking at doing literally hours. If, if you plan a 20-minute bottom time on the Fitzgerald, which is what you generally plan for a tech dive, I'm just guessing at this here. I have not got my shear water in front of me here. Maybe someone can run it here. But, uh, darn. Yep, there it goes. Do we lose you for a minute? <laughs> I think Mac is charged. Uh, he, he made it to the bottom. He may not be able to make it back up. <laughs> <laughs> Expanding the uh, New York State Artificial Reef Program, the ocean floor off Long Island's South Shore slopes very gradually from the tidal zone to the deep water canyons, hundreds of miles away, unlike other marine environments that feature rocky outcroppings, coral reefs, geological rifts, and other structures. The seafloor here is mostly flat, featureless, sandy plain. New York State Artificial Reef Program changes all that. Scuba divers everywhere are familiar with the concept of artificial reefs. Anyone who's ever visited 
The shipwreck has seen firsthand how many reclaimed man-made objects for its own. Swimming through the shipwrecks, divers observe how marine growth attaches to the hard surface of the wrecks while free swimming fish seek shelter in the protective confines, including, uh, oh, indeed, soon after the ship is sunk, a thriving marine environment has emerged. Although a vast majority of sunken vessels worldwide are result from unintentional sinkings, the idea of creating artificial reef by intentional sinkings has gained popularity in recent years. And they go blah, 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 blah. Uh, the program started in 1962, currently consists of 12 different artificial reef sites around Long Island, two of the Long Island Sound, two in the South Bay, eight in the Atlantic Ocean south of the island. These reefs are constructed of purpose-sunk vessels, recycled construction material, clean rock, steel, and other materials. As with all artificial reef programs, the material was thoroughly cleaned and decontaminated prior to being placed in the ocean. For years, local divers and fishermen advocated for the expansion of the system of the reefs. Long Island Divers Association, LIDA, was part of the advocacy, advocacy effort. And in 2018, their efforts were awarded with a decision by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo commence with the largest expansion of the reef in the state's history as a result tons of recycled material material including boats barges and other material deposited on the existing reef sites to further increase their profile and footprint on the ocean floor perhaps the most interesting part of the expansion was the inclusion of material from recently demolished tappan zee bridge in the effort steel trusses pipes girders concrete panels and much more found new home in the reefs off long island local divers have now have the opportunity to dive on the material, many of them though for over years, and they crossed the vulnerable Tappan Zee Bridge. New York is seeking to continue this expansion significantly by depositing tons of additional material in existing reefs and by creating four new reef sites. Part of the current proposal calls for increasing the 14-acre Morcellas Reef to 850 acres, taking the Shincock Reef from 35 to 850 acres, growing the 413-acre reef near Rockway to 635 acres. And also calls for quadrupling the size of the McAllister grounds off Jones Beach from 115 acres to 425 acres. New reefs are created near the Huntington Oyster Bay border off Port Jefferson near Manituck. Fourth new site is being called 16 Fathom and will be an 850-acre site about 12 miles out of the Atlantic Ocean, south of the Nassau-Suffolk County border. Department of Environmental Conservation is a conservation. DEC has studied the effects of creating artificial reefs in this area for decades and documented increase in populations of marine life in these areas, but fishermen and divers can attest to the increased fish, the, the increased firsthand. Fishermen report higher number of Atlantic cod, blackfish, black sea bass, grup, Another popular sports fish, divers see more American lobster, burgall, conger eels, ocean pout, red hank, along with crabs and other crustaceans and shellfish. A recent public hearing on the project, Chris Laporta and the DEC's reef population coordinator stressed the program is not a form of ocean dumping, noting that all the materials carefully prepared prior to placement in the water. He also sought to clarify that is not a means to repair the environment. Rather, it's best characterized as enhancing the environment by creating new places for the marine life to inhabit. LADA President Barry Lipsky, 
who has been working directly with Governor Cuomo to represent the diving community's perspective, says the artificial reefs create diving opportunities for all divers interested in seeing marine life, exploring new places, and this can only help the diving industry and the local economy. Artificial reefs have gained positive reviews across the country and around the world. New York State's initiative to commit more resources, material, and budget to this effort underscored a commitment to both the marine environment, local economies, material that would otherwise lay unused in landfills, consuming dwindling resources and space, can now find new life as thriving underwater ecosystems that benefit marine life, fishermen, scuba divers, economy. That's what we call a win-win-win-win. Why, when I agree with somebody, do I feel icky about it? I'm curious about, I remember in the old days when they used to take the barges out from New York and dump garbage. I don't remember how far out they went. Mm-hmm. Well, they had that one, what they call it, Fresh Kill. Was that that island that they made? But they closed that up, uh, God, be about 15 years ago or so. Uh, yeah, and then they, they've also did a program where they dumped a bunch of uh, uh, subway cars out there. And I'm sure that's in one of these reefs. Yeah, we saw a pictorial of that, of loading those on a barge. Mm-hmm. Quite interesting. Yeah. So I'm in agreement. I like this. But you always have to kind of, it's it's like when you're heading one way and you're trying to convince other people to go and then somebody starts pushing you in the back as you're going, you have to wonder, <laughs> why are they agreeing with me all of a sudden? So what I would like to see is what is the cost of disposing of waste versus putting it in the water. Uh, even though I'm I'm firmly in in support of, you know, cleaned steel, concrete, those sort of items, will encourage coral growth and the and the protective for the fish and the environment. So they kind of like it, but makes you wonder. Uh, the pictures that are attached to this, as you scroll down, quite interesting because it shows the pictures of the barges. Some would like huge backhoes, others with cranes on it. And then it uh, gives good pictures of the different sea life that mm-hmm. are on those uh, structures. And you name it. Yeah, you'll find enemies. Well, it's ocean fish, the crabs, the whelps, scallops, uh, the anemone, the burgal, ocean pout, all different fishes. has really nice pictures. Skates. Yeah. Yeah, the mussels really, I mean, they're just like fields of mussels out there. That's quite awesome. The Dauntless, I think I'd heard of her before. She was also put there as part of the artificial uh, reef system. There's a picture of it. A lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, somebody spent a lot of effort to go and do it. So I'm I'm glad they're doing it. Uh, and and I'd like to see something similar in the Great Lakes. I, w- I would love to see a structure you know, a couple hundred acres in size and just see what kind of benefit that has. Because, you know, when we go out, it's, except for the shipwrecks, there's nothing out there. It's like sand with a few stumps occasionally. And It's a desert filled with water. Yeah. And, and wherever there's something, there is life because it is just like, this is great. Because uh, little things like to be able to get in something so they don't get eaten by big things. And the longer they exist as little things, the better chance they have of becoming big things. Yeah. So, and I, and I think Michigan's kind of avoided the artificial uh, reef program. In Illinois, they've had some uh, around the Chicago area. I love that breakwater there at Michigan City. Uh, I almost call that like an artificial reef, even though it's got a maritime purpose. 
Uh, and then we've got, you know, many studies through all the shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. But uh, I'd I know like there to are see. programs for artificial reefs. To, uh, I don't know anyone has uh, actually successfully, you know, managed to make application, put one together, though. You said in, Mi- in, in, in Michigan there is a program? There is. I know when I was involved with the uh, South Haven Steelheaders uh, uh-huh. years ago, probably about, no, eight, ten years ago, they were looking at uh, the application process to uh, put together a artificial reef outside of South Haven. And uh, they were considering doing it, but uh, they didn't get as, get beyond looking at the application for it. Yeah. Because what I always want to do is just kind of start with a, uh, you know, do like one of these uh, marine balls, you know, concrete structure where you put it in and it just creates a uh, a home. And you could do that with a variety of things, including uh, I think we had seen some where there was almost like la- like uh, landscaping blocks. And you just kind of make this block structure and that'd be the inexpensive version. Uh, so I mean, that's something that we need to do, you know, for some of the preserves is that we partner with some of these groups and, because I would love to dive on that if you get the fishermen away long enough. It would be but, interesting to see if they put a, I don't say a reef, but a barrier out from shore. I just mm-hmm. wonder how far out they'd have to put it to help it act as a buffer for the wave action to keep some of the erosion factor. You know, anything would be a benefit. It's just how much of a benefit. And I think most of the damage is caused by just a few storms. I mean, right now we're in the high water point, which every day in a high water point you got you're having erosion, and we need the water point for 15 years for the erosion to kind of stabilize. But most likely we'll have a, a low water cycle in the next five years, and we'll all be wringing our hands that you know the the water's too low, and we've got to put ladders in our boats to get up to the docks. And we've been there before. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's all a cycle. It it comes and it goes, uh, and we're always concerned whenever you're at the top of the cycle, the bottom of the cycle, that whatever end you're on, it's not going to end, and that this is something that's going to change forever. But yeah, we've been so far at the top of the cycle the last three years, and uh, each year it gets a little bit higher. Yeah, but it was like the four years ago was the one where we. We're accusing the Army Corps of Engineers of dredging the St. Clair River too deep and that the water would never recover because we, you know, we, we damaged it. So it wasn't until we had that, that nice winter where everything iced over and preserved the water and now we're getting some moisture and it's, I, I, I don't think we're done at our height yet. And then here we've got the world's oldest shipwreck discovered off Devon Coast dates back to 900 B.C., uh, legend has it that if the waters off South Devon coast were drained, we'd be able to walk the length from wreck to wreck. Devon's coast is full of shipwrecks, both old and new, that have washed up over the years, including the Demetrius, Riversdale, and Da Vincia. Paste in the chat room because I think on this one might not have made it into the. Uh, I was going to say, I don't see it. <laughs> yeah. I, I had it in the show notes, and then I, it somehow it kind of looks like it missed. So I just put it in the chat room. Uh, one of the most incredible wrecks to be unveiled is the world's oldest, which haven't we covered the world's oldest like five times in the last year, and they're never the same shipwreck? The unnamed shipwreck is discovered lying undisturbed in the seabed around 300 feet away from the coast and believed to have been 
there for more than 3,000 years. Experts believe the Bronze Age trading vessel sank in the English Channel as it carried an extremely valuable cargo of tin and copper to the UK from the mainland Europe. Because we, we talk about the oldest, but we, we found shipwrecks in Egypt, which have to be older than this. And also the Baltic Sea has had some that have been much older. And then, you know, the Red Sea's got some that are older. So uh, I don't know if somebody just, if, if once you get over 2,000, they go, oh, this is the oldest. And that's not even talking about the Griffin. You know, there's always a caveat to the oldest when you read the fine print. You know, it's, it's the it, oldest it's, made of wood, or it's the oldest with tree nails, or it's the oldest, you know, from Greek Greece. You know, there's always yeah. something which qualifies that being the oldest of something. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, they said the 3,000 year old shipwreck was made from planks of timber, measured 40 feet in length and six feet in width. It's understood that the vessel which lay in the area called the Walsh Gully would have been made of a 15-man crew, all of whom would have paddled. In 2010, experts say discovery is genuinely exciting, particularly due to the fact that there's only one of four Bronze Age vessels in the British waters, but it's the oldest. In 2009, Southwest Maritime Archaeologist Group, SWMAG, investigated the boat's cargo. Go scroll through all the stuff asking for money. 295 artifacts were retrieved, including that of weapons, jewelry, Five hundred, uh, two hundred fifty-nine copper ingots and twenty-nine tin ingots. It is believed that the copper and tin would have been used for making bronze, the main product of the period, which is used to forge weapons, tools, jewelry, and ornaments. Allison Joan, owner of Sea and Shore in Salcombe, said it is now a registered site. You need permission to dive there. It's an officially protected wreck site. Years ago, divers went down, explored the wreck. Then the police boat turned up, and they had to search their van in case they discovered any gold. A plaque marking the location of some of the most significant shipwreck sites is displayed on the Terrace Negara Rock Hotel. That's a nice little ingot they have there. And then, uh, you know, is, it, is this a little bit like the spray that you use on your, your pans? It's a supersonic metal spray that could make subs even deadlier. The Royal Australian Navy is investing in so-called cold spray technology to repair its six Collins-class attack submarines. The tech would allow the service to repair parts of submarines, even the pressure hull, while still at sea. From an additive manufacturing, cold spray could revolutionize shipboard repairs aboard the sub statewide. Oh, I saw the commercial for this. Isn't it that guy in that glass boat? Or is it the one where he's got the window screen and he sprays it on? Cold spray involves blasting damaged metal surface of supersonic glass filled with metallic particles. The particles fuse the water surface. It's sprayed upon foaming solid metal. The texture takes its name from the fact that, unlike repairs done with welding, fusing is done far below the melting point. And then they show a video uh, demonstrating the cold spray released by ASC, the Australian government organization that builds and maintains the country's submarine fleets. Cold spray is safer than welding. Traditional means by making repair to metal ships. Unlike welding, there's no flame that could ignite gases such as hydrogen. Real danger in submarines where flammable gas buildup can cause serious explosions. There's no heat that can cause burns or to ship maintainers. Though being hit with a blast of supersonic metallic particles probably isn't much fun either. There's no storing of flammable welding gases because the current cold spray process uses non-flammable nitrogen. 
going through to see if there's anything more. They just kind of repeat the same thing over and over. Well, if you could do that to the hull of a submarine, you could do that to the sub or hull of a ship, force it. Yeah. Got pipes that are steel underwater. Is that only steel or is that iron also? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit more involved. I mean, they're they're not going out there with a little shake-up can and spraying it on the side. They've got, I mean, there's still some equipment involved. Uh, so it's it's an interesting process. Are they actually using it is what I want to know. Or is this just a pitch? This is in popular mechanics. It says the tech blast surfaces tiny bits of metal at high speed, binding it to the surface. So it's almost like it's the force of the metal moving against the other metal that from the photo there, it looks like a steel plate that they're demonstrating on. I mean, it's cool. Just have to make fun of all the, uh, sounds like an infomercial. Though. It's interesting if you scroll down to look at pictures of the XL Robo subs, the sea train, mm-hmm. how they did find the unsinkable USS Nevada. Yeah, those, those in the bottom are, uh, Pretty interesting. I like how popular mechanics, once you get to an article, they group some of them that might be interesting. Well, you got that one picture of the friendly fire incident a couple of years ago. Sinks raining warship. They need to change the name of that. Friendly fire doesn't seem that friendly to me. Yeah. I think, was that it? Did we get through? Yes, we did. Yeah, we got through it. Woo! So that does it for Scoob and the News. And here we are in summer, and who would have thought that we have had very little diving? But I know that there were people diving since the last episode, because I've seen photos, and I believe there's a buoy floating out there in Lake Michigan that wasn't there the week before. It looks like the uh, Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve was able to get a buoy up on the Havana. So how did that go, Kevin? Well, it was a bit of a challenge, but we managed to... did over a series of two dives, had great conditions. It was very flat out. Um, you know, the uh, last season we sunk the uh, subsurface. It was uh, actually hovering about five feet off the bottom. Did a dive where we located that, floated it to within uh, 10 feet of the surface, then uh, ran a, popped a bag from there to mark it from the surface, mark it so we could see it, so we could bring the uh, buoy over and chain it down. Um, Water was a little chilly, had a bottom top of 45 degrees, but the visibility was magnificent. And the Havana's a wreck, which uh, it's not common, to, not uncommon to find five foot of visibility out there. Uh, you know, sometimes you have 10. We had 20 foot vis, and I got the video Ooh. to prove it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, excellent conditions down there. I saw more of that wreck diving that day than I've ever seen before. And the thing with nice visibility is it almost makes it feel smaller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you don't get so lost out there because when you when the visibility is bad because you know, the Havana is pretty broken up. You know, you've got your uh, keel section, you've got your chine section. It's kind of shaped like in a V. And a lot of other curious features are, you know, all scattered around as well. It's uh, easy not to be able to find your way back to the way you came in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it could get quite uh, you know, confusing down there. But, uh, no, it went very, very well. Amy ended up diving very short. She uh, got a little chilled. Um, like we had a surface temp was around 50. There really was not much of a thermocline. Um, you know, like I say, it was cold, but it was kind of cold from top to bottom, and she was in a wetsuit. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, she got, 
got in the water, helped out, and got back in the boat. Called it good. So, yeah. But, uh, yep, we got it in, and uh, we're hoping to uh, do the uh, Rockaway buoy here shortly. Okay. Well, I happen to know where the Rockaway buoy is. So, do you know? Yeah, okay. we we can make sure that happens. It blinks at me every time I I walk there into the <laughs> barn. Well, good. Uh, now it's still blinking at you. Yeah, I'm. I was surprised. I. I I wouldn't think it, it would have uh, lasted that long. I, I think part of it is it's got a sensor on it, so it's probably not dark all that often there in the barn. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, so good. Uh, you know, nice to see some visibility. I've seen visibility like that in the Rockaway, but it's amazing. We've done a Rockaway dive within a day of the Havana. And it, it, the, you can have 20 feet in the Rockaway and then four feet in the Havana. So yeah. Good. Yeah. Uh, how was well, the condition yeah. of the cribs uh, holding the chain? Well, the uh, crib was just the way we left it, except it had sunk in a little bit. Uh, you know, the uh, crib is, oh, not quite half embedded in the bottom. So it's, uh, and there was quite a bit of sand was in the crib as well. So what before, oh, that... you know, it was just just the bags of steel before, but, but now it's, you know, it's getting settled in pretty good. Yeah, well, that's actually, I would consider it to be a good thing. Oh yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, it was a uh, you know we had a great couple of dives on it, uh, great conditions. Uh, you know, I I don't know, I've kind of had some problems with uh, getting out there to get these set up. Uh, you know, the boat boat's been doing great, but uh, I don't know the process of changing over tow vehicles, and it's been a little bit more involved than I'd hoped for. So yeah, I mean that kind of happens, but I guess if there's going to be a year where we're going to be challenged to get out, this would be the one. That is it. That is definitely it. So, plus, you know, with with Amy and I getting getting married, you know, we, we got married just last Sunday, uh, Saturday. Uh, you know, we we kind of had other priorities at this point, and yes. you know, we 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 do have, have a dive team for for the uh, Southwest Special Water Preserve. It's just that due to the COVID, we've been very restricted as to who we could have in the boat. You know, the uh, current regulations out there are, uh, you know. Only people residing within the same household can be on the same boat, because uh, the DNR doesn't believe it's possible to maintain social distancing uh, even on a larger boat. So, um, you know that unfortunately has meant that we have not been able to involve uh, the majority of our dive team. You now, Amy and I are are both uh, part of the dive team, so we managed to get it taken care of. Very good. And I also saw that you were chopping up some steel and getting that uh, ready for, was it a uh, couple more wrecks? Yes, uh, Gary Passon uh, came over and uh, brought some tools, and uh, you know, he, he used a uh, cutting wheel, and I used my cutting torch, and we were cutting up. Uh, you know, we have a number of these beams the preserve purchased for uh, weight for the cribs, Uh we're actually going to do a hybrid with these cribs. Uh, they're going to be uh, about half the weight's going to come from steel, about half the weight's going to come from cement. Um, we chopped up, oh, I got the numbers written down someplace, but right around 1,200 pounds of steel. We wanted to get it, you know, sw- you know, small enough increments that it could fit in the cribs and not trap, you know, air pockets. We, we pour the cement around it there. Uh, these will be lowered down to the, uh, oh, the, North Shore Tug and the uh, Animal Number Five shipwrecks by NOAA this summer, and uh, you know we're just getting. It's kind of a long process to actually put put a put a mooring buoy in, you know, because you have to put the uh, the crib in, 
You have to assemble all the tackle for it. You have to order the order the buoy, and uh, you know get everything put together and uh, assemble underwater. Which uh, you know it's cool. It's a lot of fun. You know uh, we are diving with a purpose out there, but uh, you know safety is paramount. You know uh, you got to make sure that everybody gets who gets in the water gets back in the boat safely. So uh, you know and we are volunteers. We're amateurs at this. So you know we are kind of slow and methodical about how we plan this stuff out. Uh, you know, again, it's only our second year here in the Southwest of uh, doing these type of boring buoys. So we're kind of a learning process as we go, but uh, we're having a lot of success. So, although not as much success as some of the other preserves are, I should mention that the uh, West Michigan Water Preserve, which is just to the north of us, uh, John Hansen runs that one. And I believe they have nine uh, sites that are buoyed now. Um, wow, very good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, the Straits is, is the one that's really killing it. Uh, Dan Friedhoff, uh, main guy running that preserve up there, um, they have 21 sites they buoy up there. Now, that is a lot of floats, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but they're getting it done. They're getting it done. Yeah. So, um, there's other how, other. Pres- how many ahead. years did it take them to get to 21 buoys? Oh, I don't know, but uh, this project's been going on, I believe, for six years, and I'm sure it's taken all that to get to 21 buoys. Um, you know, you have other preserves that are coming online, too. I know that uh, Sean Crowell is getting the uh, the Salinac Shores Preserve up and running, and uh, they're looking at uh, buoying wrecks in the near future. Um, I know that uh, Jack Grimes is, is uh, putting together the uh, – what is it? The uh, Whitefish Point Preserve, and uh, they've got a couple buoys, and they're coming along with that. Uh, Ron Bloomfield has been examining sites for the uh, Keweenaw Preserve, and uh, not quite sure when those will be buoyed, but they're getting, they're putting together a list of wrecks to be buoyed there in the Keweenaw area. Um, see, I know that the Thumb area is coming along. Um, they're having some complications because a lot of their wrecks are right in the shipping lanes and uh, have not been approved to be buoyed, but uh, they believe they have some down there, which, which can get buoyed as well. So uh, we're coming together. We're getting there. Excellent. Let's see. Uh, Mac, did you know of anybody else who got any dives in? Um, well, I, I think I saw some Gull Lake dives going on. My own son was Gull Lake. Um, I actually got in the river Saturday. Uh, wetsuit. If your top of the river current is knock you around and drag you down the river, if you get on the bottom, totally manageable. Especially if you got the rocks and stuff on. It's a little chilly when you first get in, even with a leaky wetsuit. Once you get in, it, it uh, you're doing quite well in a wetsuit. Uh, visibility, um, maybe a foot. <laughs> well. So, you, you got to be a little careful. Uh, you don't let the current grab you and start tossing you into stuff. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, I saw that. Dive. That wasn't a, I wasn't a fun fun dive. It was paid dive, so a little different. Yeah. And then we've seen some of the uh, local uh, shops and clubs get some dives in. Uh, there was a dive on Sherman Lake uh, last night which is just south of Gull Lake. And uh, we saw some amazing bottles. I think, was that Eric who was pulling those out? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, uh, is that a World's Fair bottle that was embossed? 
that's what I understood, but I don't know which year, the 60s or the one prior to that. Was it the 60s and the 30s? Were those the two back then? Typing away frantically. So there's been people getting some some dives in. Yeah, he said there were 17 divers, 65 degree water, great viz. Uh, he says that particular lake has a uh, bubble system. So yeah, the S must be to the 60s. That's still a great find. I mean, those are some some nice bottles. And so we we people are getting out there. So they're getting some stuff wet. I've almost got my yard completely mowed for the second time. So once that's complete, I can go diving again. But without the boat, without access to a boat, this is going to be a really short diving season. And I'm not really too too excited about going in the rivers in a COVID time of year. Well, you got a mask on. I don't know. Come on now. Yeah, a mask and social distancing. But I also see all those big waste treatment plants. And most likely it'd be fine, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I'd have no problem with Lake 16 or... Uh, you know, maybe even the piers wouldn't be too bad. But well, well, the good. plumes coming out of the pier last week really, really weird. And uh, doing a shoreline tour down towards Michigan City, New Buffalo, uh, they had a algae line that was quite significant along the shoreline, meaning offshore, but in the in the shallows. And I'm talking hundreds of yards long. Hmm. And I have no idea where that came from. Quite interesting to look at. I did get some pictures of it, but uh, no kind of no samples or anything like that. And I didn't see anything in the paper about people taking a sample to have that checked out from the same aspect as well, well, didn't, where did that didn't, come from? Didn't some of the beaches uh, weren't they shut down because of contamination, the high E. coli levels? They were last year. I don't know. I haven't heard about it this year. It seemed like I saw something. Maybe I maybe I dreamt it, but there was. Uh, I thought I saw that there were a couple of beaches uh, had failed, had not passed their tests. Uh, so we'll just have to keep an eye on that. And yeah. those fo- those photos you've been posting on Facebook are pretty impressive of just what the different locations look like now. A whole different world out there with the erosion going on. Yeah. Well, let's. See, do we have anything else we need to cover? Anybody have anything they want to plug before we get on out of here? Well, did you want a safety thing for today? Sure, let's do a safety thing. Okay. Well, the topic or the title basically is Point No Return. And I'll give you the preamp. That'll tell you what's going to happen. He and two others moved in while the fourth in their group decided to hang back by the end. Entering the corridor, they were certain would leave out of the lead out of the wreck they turned the corner and ran into a cloud of silt. Fizz dropped the zero, and Harry didn't know which way to go. But he knew one thing for certain. He was low on air. The dive. Four divers explored the shipwreck, which rested 140 feet, both inside and out. The group was on its second day of diving the wreck after two successful and uneventful dives the previous day. Harry, a 51-year-old with technical diving experience, and others planned to penetrate areas that were considered off-limits. A mutual friend who was not long on this dive trip told them that the barriers to the engine room had recently been removed and that they could see part of the wreck few had explored before. That was all the motivation they needed. The off-limits area contains narrow passages that make it easy to get lost and are dangerous to navigate in full gear. 
Over the years, the divers have removed some of the chains and wells so they could gain access to the accident. The group progressed through the early portion of the dive without incident. The divers entered a small room within the lower decks of the ship. One diver decided to wait there. The remaining three continued on. Without realizing what they were doing, the divers stirred up a considerable amount of silt behind them. The fourth diver waited as long as he could but got dangerously low on air. He realized he needed to surface on his own. The diver sent it all the way to the dive boat to let the crew know his friend of his friends were inside the wreck. He then dropped back down to complete a safety stop at 15 feet. Using the tank, the boat crew staged over the side. The tanks he carried were empty. Two crew members from the boat quickly donned their gear to send it to the wreck. Within a few minutes, they located Harry's body and brought him to the surface. It took additional divers to locate and bring the remaining two divers to the surface the next day. Emergency personnel rushed Harry to the hospital, but he was pronounced dead on arrival. After the other bodies were recovered, investigation of their equipment showed all the tanks were totally empty. Autopsies reported the cause of death as drownings. Equipment investigation indicated the divers were carrying lines and reels, but for unknown reasons, no one used them as they entered the wreck. The analysis. Any overhead diving environment carries additional risk. Anytime there is something between you and a direct descent to the surface, whether it's a cavern, cave, a wreck, or ice, situation requires additional training, equipment, and preparation. Dives that require mandatory decompression are also considered overhead environments. There isn't a physical barrier between you and the surface, but ascending without making a decompression stop increases the likelihood of decompression sickness. Silt accumulation in areas where there is very little current or circulation underwater, sediment and particulate in the water gets trapped inside these structures and settles to the bottom. Over the years, silt can and often accumulates into piles of fine powder several inches thick. An errant fin kick or hand movement can stir up the sediment, making it impossible to see, and it doesn't settle soon. Divers trained in wreck penetration or cavern and cave diving learn pin kicking techniques to move themselves through the water without directing force downward at the floor of the wreck or the bottom of the cave, though it stir up the silt. This is a very important part of the training necessary to dive in these environments. There is no way to know why the divers in this case didn't use the lines and reels they had with them, but their use would likely have increased their survival chances. The accepted practice for a dive like this is to use a dive guideline that assures you can find your way out of the wreck, even if you otherwise get disoriented or caught in a silt out. That way you can reel the line back in, find your way past the area of impaired visibility. Though there can be concerns about lines getting cut or entanglement, proper use of the reel and line placement are part of the training needed for this kind of diving and there's absolutely no reason not to use a guideline. With the wreck resting at 140 feet, meaning the average depth of this dive was likely between 120 and 130 feet of seawater. At these depths, the no decompression limit would normally be 10 to 15 minutes max, according to the Navy dive tables. To make a penetration dive at these depths, you should be bringing along additional air supplies and plan the dive as decompression dives Give yourself time to explore the wreck and make it back to the surface safely. 
Manage the risk. Technical penetration dives like this require specialized training and equipment. Any diver can call any dive for any reason. In this situation, the fourth diver chose not to go deeper inside the wreck. For whatever reason, he was low on air or just didn't feel comfortable with the dive in the situation. That decision saved his life. It's never worth putting yourself in a dangerous situation outside the limits of your training. Do not make dives you're not ready for or not comfortable with. Too many divers go ahead and make dives they aren't prepared for end up being part of this column. Lessons for life. Seek training in overhead environments. Do not enter areas you're not trained or prepared for. Use your common sense. Do not become overconfident in your skills. Call a dive if and when ever you don't feel comfortable with the dive, the dive plan, the situations, or your buddies. You can always come back another day. Those are the key elements. Lessons for life. Excellent. Yeah. Good good things to learn by. And nothing we don't already know, but you always wonder why sometimes you let yourself get carried away. I'll only go in there for a minute. Well, yeah, because, I mean, they had the dive reels. Yeah. And they All just, them. yeah, and they just didn't didn't use them. I mean, it does. it's not that, but they, they just didn't want the hassle of reeling them back up or. And being that they were experienced and having dove it for three days, their confidence level was up there high. They felt they, they knew the wreck, but they hadn't been inside of the wreck or in areas that were not normally places. Yeah, and I, I can understand it, but, you know, that's the, the risks with doing that. Well, the key item I, I look at it is, can you let peer pressure induce you to do something you basically feel uncomfortable doing? And if you can say yes, then uh, you probably should not be doing it. Yeah, yeah none of that, none of uh, here hold my beer. Well, yeah, if it feels like a bad thing, it probably is, people. Like you said, hold my beer. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, Kevin, do you have anything you want to plug or any last thoughts? Did we lose him? Uh, yeah, I don't see him online. Okay. He, sh- he showed up on my list, but he- it's kind of like just dangling there. So uh, we certainly appreciate your support. We hope everybody's doing well in uh, the COVID-19 thing, where, where you seem to be coming out of it, looking at the numbers. The state of Michigan has updated their white has some new tools and we're able to see a little bit better data, which I would have loved to have had from the beginning. I mean, I understand that development takes some time, but this is the way that data needed to be presented. You know, I, I detest those stacked graphs because that's nothing about, but, you know, but we had more than yesterday. That's all that those graphs did. But now we've got some actual useful graphs, which talk about cases per thousand and actually cases per day and it charts it and it gives us a clear case of how you move through the steps i personally disagree with some of the steps and what they do at each of the steps but at least we've got some documentation which makes a common conversation point so that we could uh dispute it i'm really anxious to see any changes in the next right yeah because as you're loosening it up I mean, the thought is that as you start loosening the restrictions, you should either see it maintain a level or increase if you've done it too quickly. And we're not seeing that. So even as they're loosening restrictions, I think what the result is, 
is that we've had a lot of people who have been ignoring the restrictions for a while now. So once you've ignored them or you're not following it to the level they are, even though they've said you now don't have to follow it to this point, if that's what you've been doing, there should be no change. And that's kind of what we're seeing. Also, they're discovering that some of the virus is very, it has a, uh, that the humidity in the air can affect the ability for it to transmit. Uh, from what I understand is that the more humidity, the, the harder it is for the droplets to pass from person to person, which is why they think that they, it does well in drier climates and in the, the winter. Yeah, they season. get heavier and then they settle. They settle quick. But it's not meaning it's going to completely go away. But, you know, if you reduce anything by a, a certain percent, 10, 20, 30 percent, then you're going to have less transmission ability. So, yeah, I agree. And then with all these uh, events that have been happening in this last week, you, know, you add, you know, seven to 10 days onto that. And it'd be interesting to see, do we have some spikes in population centers related to those activities? So. That's kind of what we'll be looking for in, in Michigan, I'm sure many of the other states, but hopefully everybody's doing well. And if you're enjoying the show, we could certainly use your support. You can go to our uh, website, www.scubaobsessed.com, click on over to our Patreon link, or you can go directly to Patreon and search for Scuba Obsessed, and you will find us $3 or more. It gets you early access to the show notes, and it helps us uh, keep the program going. Uh, and we've got a, I've got a few ideas of things I want to do, and uh, hopefully we can do those as we get out of uh, quarantine. On Twitter, at Scoob Obsessed. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scoob Obsessed. And I think we are getting to that time of the show. Excellent. Yeah. It's almost pumpkin time anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it's boy. Like yeah. Yeah, we've, we've, we've been going for a while. So what I did is I thought a good theme for some of the jokes tonight would be graduation. So of anybody who I have to say this is absolutely sucks is if you are a senior in high school, this has got to be the crappiest year. I mean, I I can't think other than during war times, uh, another example of where a senior class has been so affected by uh, events outside their control is going through this. Well, at least we're not getting drafted, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let me see. So here we go. Uh, uh, and, and, and I've got a few of them, so this one might be a warm-up. A young man was hired by a supermarket, uh, reported for his first day of work. The manager greeted him with a warm handshake and a smile and gave him a broom and said, your first job will be sweep out the store. But I'm a college graduate, the young man said indignantly. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that, said the manager. Here, give me the broom. I'll show you how to do it. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, let's see, uh, a young accountant straight out of the uni applies for a job advertised in the Sydney Morning Herald. He is interviewed by the owner of a small business who is built up from scratch. I need someone with accounting degree, says the man, but mainly I'm looking for someone to do the ring for me. What do you mean, says the accountant? I have a lot of things to worry about. And I want someone else to worry about money matters. Okay, says the accountant. How much are you offering? Well, I could start uh, $75,000, says the owner. $75,000? How can a business like this afford to pay so much? That, says the man, is your first worry. Oh, let's see. I think I've got one other. Or maybe not. 
Well, I thought I had another one. I mean, that's that's kind of anticlimactic. Well, I may have to cut that and make it sound like that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, I see Karen hung in there. Yeah. Talk about diehards. They certainly are. So I think on that note, we say go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And then Kevin would say something like, and have a good time doing it. Tip your librarians or something. I think that's how it goes. Well, we can't support the librarians right now because they ain't even open. They, can, you, can you even go to a library? No. I had a six-inch stack of magazines. Awesome. Because I, 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 I hate to toss them, but I'm. Yeah. Well, and, and I know librarians really like to help people and stuff. But at some point, you have to think they you have to think they're going. Ah, finally, silence. Back when uh, Ken and I would go out doing a little research, like on the Davy Crockett, uh, you go to some of the little town libraries, and those ladies will bend over backwards to help you. Oh yeah. Well, not to mention when you want to know. Yeah, you know, we're looking for not necessarily treasure, but we're looking for where people used to gather, have parties, picnics near the water, blah, blah, blah. And they'll always come out with a book somebody local wrote when I was young. And those yeah. are treasure troves and where to dive. Like, oh, you mean they used to have a well there that's still there? And they used to have a tripod and lure the bottles into the well to keep them cold? And sometimes yeah. the lines would break? And uh, I found one where up north where they had a copper camp. And that's how they used to keep their beer and stuff. And these divers went up there several years back. You're talking 20 years ago. Yeah. Erected a tripod, lift of it. You had to be hooked to your feet to go down. And the stuff he brought up was freaking amazing. But by the same token, being upside down, attached by your feet, is a little claustrophobic. I'll be the guy in the in the lawn chair, uh, yeah, su- supporting the guy winching him down. I'm yeah. I'm not going to be the guy. <laughs> the only way I would be comfortable doing that is on full face, with a bailout and a line up to the surface. So yeah. if I got snagged, you got some time to help me out. Don't we have some uh, some of the younger uh, commercial divers in the club? You know, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a good job for them? Absolutely. Yeah. They're immortal at this point. Yeah. Fearless. Able to be out there. I, and I didn't say stupid. No, no, I, I don't. No, that's not that well, at all. Well, I say that with tongue in cheek because you don't know what you don't know. No. And when you're a diver, sometime your assignments will be such that until you've gained experience, gained through doing some of the stupid ones, you realize. I ain't going to do that again without yeah. blah, blah, blah. I had a couple of those aha moments that changed my perspective on diving the hard way. Fortunately, I live. Yeah. Did you see Karen's photo in the chat room? Uh, uh, out in the wheat fields? Yeah, the, the shark yeah. fins in the feet. Land, land sharks, land sharks. There you go. Let's get yep. Craig out of here. And full get in here and hit the road. All right. And it is some day in June, isn't it? June 4th.
Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving. It's scuba. It's something with scuba. Scuba Obsessed is the... Oh, here we go. I think I need a drink. It's been a, it's been a long year. And it is 4.50 a day, so we're good there. <laughs> okay.